This week on the show, we have the elements of style, Unix as literature, the shell and its crappy handling of white space, and why that is, with a couple of examples, Theodore Rad on Zenbleed, and why that is important not only for OpenBSD, the new OpenSense 23.7 release, Elomos getting a new C compiler by Brian Callahan, fixing ThinkPad X1 Wi-Fi on FreeBSD, and more in this week's episode of BSD. Now! BSD Now, episode 523, literally Unix, recorded on the 10th of August, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. I hope we have found you in a nice spot where you can listen to this episode and have some, some nice time. We have a little bit of everything in this one. Um, so let's start with headlines. This time it's the element of style, Unix as literature. If there's nothing different about Unix people, how come so many were liberal art majors? That's the love of words that makes Unix stand out. So this is an article by Thomas Schofield. In the late 1980s, I worked in the advanced R&D arm of the Silicon Valley's regional telephone company. My lab was populated mostly by PhDs and gifted hackers. It was, might expect, an all-unix shop. The manager of the group was an exception. No advanced degree, no technical credentials. He seemed pointedly self-conscious about it. We suspected he felt wrongly we agreed, underconfident of his education and intellect. One day, a story circulated through the group that confirmed our suspicions. The manager had confided he was indeed intimidated by the intelligence of the group and was taking steps to rem remedy the situation. His prescription, though, was unanticipated. I need to become more of an intellectual, he said. I'm going to learn Unix. Needless to say, we made more than a little fun out of this. I mean, come on, as if Unix could transform me into a mastermind like the supplicating scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. I uncharitably imagine a variation on the old Charles Atlas ads. Those senior engineers will never kick sand in my face again. But part of me was sympathetic. The boss isn't entirely wrong, is he? There is something different about Unix people, isn't there? In the years since, I've come to recognise what my old engineer manager was getting at. I still think he was misguided, but... In retrospect, I think his belief was more accurate than I recognised at the time. To be sure, the Unix community has its own measure of technical parachutalism and nerdy tunnel vision, but in my experience, there seemed to be a suspicious overrepresentation of polyglots and liberal art folks in Unix shops. I'll admit my evidence is sketchy and anecdotal, for instance, while banging out a line of shell with a fellow engineer peering over my shoulder, I might make an intentionally obscure literally reference. So there's a bit of um, script here. If test minus Z and then PSEF grep whom then echo G. You can read for yourself in the show notes on the article. Unix colleagues 
were much more likely to recognize and play in a way I'd never expected in VMS shops, IBM's big iron data centers, or DOS ghettos on my consulting beat. Being a liberal arts type myself, though I cleverly concealed this in my resume, I wondered why this should be true. My original explanation, Unix Historical Association with University Computing Environments, like UC Berkeley's, didn't hold up over years. Many of the Unix failures I met came from schools with small or absent computer science departments. There had to be a connection, but I had no plausible hypothesis. It wasn't until I started regularly asking Unix roofsnicks what they didn't like about Unix that better explanations emerged. Some of the prevailing dislikes had a distinctly populist flavour. People caught a whiff of snobbery about Unix and regarded it with the same proletarian resentment usually reserved for highbrow institutions like opera or ballet. They had a point. Until recently, Unix was a lingua franca of commuting upper crust. The more harried, practical and underprivileged of the computing world seemed to object to this aura of privilege. Unix adepts historically have been a coddled bunch, intended to be proud of their hard-won knowledge, but these class differences are fading fast in modern computing environments. Now Unix engineers are more common and low or no-cost Unix variants run on inexpensive hardware. Certainly Unix folks aren't as coddled in the age of NT. There was a standard literary of more specific criticisms. Unix is difficult and time-consuming to learn. There are too many things to remember. It's arcane and necessarily and needlessly complex. But the most recurrent complaint was that it was too text-orientated. People really hated the command line. With all the utilities, obscure flags, and arguments that they had to memorize, they hated all the typing. One mislaid character and you had to start over. Interestingly, this complaint came most often from the users of the GUI-laden Macintosh or Windows platforms. People had slaved away on DOS batch scripts or spent their days on character-based terminals of multi-user, non-Unix systems were less likely to express the same grievance. Though I understood how people might have been put off having to remember such willfully obscure utility names like cat and grep, I continued to be puzzled at why they resented typing. Then I realized I could connect and com- connect the complaint with the scores of intellectual elite as my manager described them in Unix films. The common thread was wordsmithing. A suspiciously high proportion of my Unix colleagues had already developed in some prior career a comfort and fluency with text and printed words. They were adept readers and writers, and Unix played handily into those strengths. Unix was, in some sense, literature to them. Suddenly, uh, the overrepresentation of polyglots, liberal arts types, and varicose readers in the Unix community didn't seem so mysterious and pointed the way to a deeper issue. In a world world increasingly dominated by image culture, for example, TV, movies, JPEG files, Unix remains rooted in the culture of the word. Unix programmers express themselves in a rich vocabulary of system utilities, command line arguments, along with a flexible, varied grammar and syntax. 
a Unix enthusiast, language becomes second nature. Once I overheard a conversation in a Palo Alto restaurant. There used to be shrimp pasta plate here under 10 bucks. Let me see. Cat menu, rep shrimp, test less than $10. Though not syntactically correct and less than scintillating conversation, a diner from an NT shop probably couldn't have expressed himself as casually. With Unix text on the command line, std in, std out, std error is the primary interface mechanism. Unix system utilities are a sort of Lego construction set for wordsmiths. Pipes and filters connect one utility to the next, text flows invisibly between. Working with a shell, orc, lex, derivatives, or the utility set is literally a word dance. Working on the command line, hands poised over the keys, uninterrupted by frequent reaches for the mouse, is a posture familiar to wordsmiths, especially the really old guys who once worked on teletypes or electric typewriters. It makes some of the same demands as writing an essay, both require composition skills, both demand a thorough knowledge of the grammar and syntax, both reward mastery with powerful, compact expressions. At the risk of alienating both techies and writers alike, I also suggest that Unix offers something else prized in literature, a coherence and consistent style, something writers call a voice. It doesn't take much exposure to Unix before we realize that the Unix core was the creation of a very few well-synchronized minds. I've never met Dennis Ritchie, Brian Kernigan, or Ken Thompson, but after a decade and a half on Unix, I imagine I might greet them as friends, knowing something of the shape of their thoughts. You might argue that Unix is as vi- visually orientated as other U- OSs. Modern Unix offerings certainly have their fair share of GUI-based OS interfaces. In practice, though, the Unix cores subvert them. They end up serving Unix's tradition of word culture, not replacing it. Taking a look at the console of most Unix workstations, after Windows you see are terminal emulators with command line prompts or VI jobs running within them. Nowhere in this word image culture tension better represented than in the contrast between Unix and NT. When the much vaunted Unix killer arrived a few years ago, backed by the full faith and credit of the Redmond juggernaut, I approached it with an open mind. Better NT left me cold. There was something deeply unsatisfying about it. I had that ineffable feeling. Apologies to Gertrude Stein. There were, there was no there, there. Granted, I already knew the major themes of the system and the network administration from my Unix days, and I will admit that the registry hacking did vex me for a few days, but after my short scramble up the learning curve, I looked back at Unix with the feeling I'd been demoted from a backhoe to a leaf blower. NT just didn't offer the room to move. The one-size-fits-all, point-and-click, we've already anticipated all-your-needs world of NT, had me yearning for those obscure command line flags and man-k. I wanted to craft my own solutions from my own toolbox, not have my ideas slammed into the visually homogeneous prepackaged Soviet world of Microsoft Foundation classes. NT was definitely much too close to image culture for my comfort. Endless point-and-click graphical dialog boxes, hunting around the screen with the mouse, 
pop-up after pop-up demanding my attention, the experience was almost exclusively reactive. Every task demanded a GUI-based utility front-end loaded with insidious assumptions about how to visualize and thus conceptualize the operation. I couldn't think outside the box because everything literally was a box. There was no opportunity for ad hoc consideration of how a task might alternatively be performed. I will admit, NT made my life easier in some respects. I found myself doing less remembering names of utilities, command line arguments, syntax, and more recognizing solution components associated with checkboxes, radio buttons, and pull downs. I spent much less time typing. Certainly, my right hand spent more time herding the mouse around the desktop, but after a few months, I started to get a tired, desolated feeling, akin to fatigue I feel after too much channel surfing or video gaming. Too much time spent reacting, not enough time spent in active analysis and expression. In short, image culture burnout. The one ray of light that illuminated my tenure in NT environments was the burgeoning popularity of Perl. Perl seemed to find its way into NT shops as a CGI solution for web development, but people quickly recognized its power and adopted it for uses far outside the scope of web development. System administration, revision control, remote file distribution, network administration. The irony is that Perl itself is a subset of Unix features condensed into a quick and dirty scripting language. In literary light, if Unix is the great novel, Perl is the Cliff's Notes. Mastery of Unix, like mastery of language, offers real freedom. The price of freedom is always dear, but there's no substitute. Personally, I'd rather pay for my freedom than live in a bitmapped, pop-up happy dungeon like NT. I'm hoping that as IT folks become more seasoned and less impressed by superficial convenience at the expense of real freedom, they will yearn for the kind of freedom and responsibility Unix allows. When they do, Unix will be there to fill that need. And that's by Thomas Schofield, and he's been wrestling Unix apparently since 1983 and currently works at Expert Support Inc. in Mountain View, California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this article is from 1998, so that's why there's so many references to NT, but it still holds true and has some uh, good historic value. Okay, let's see what the next article is. Ah, it's about the shell and its crappy handling of white space. So why is that? Uh, in the universe of discourse, as this blog is named, uh, it says that I'm about 35 years into Unix shell programming and I continue to despise it. And the shell's treatment of white space is a constant problem. The fact that, so there's a for loop in shell, for i in all the uh, JPEGs, do copy $i to slash temp, and then we're done, or the, the loop is done. So that doesn't work uh, and is a constant pain. Problem here is that if one of the file names is byte space me.jpg, then the cp command will turn into cp byte space me.jpg uh, slash tmp. So, and then that of course fails, saying copy cannot stat byte, no such file or directory, and cannot stat me.jpg, no such file or directory, because the, uh, you know, space needs to be quoted properly, and that didn't happen. So, uh, there, for example, another example is there is a file named byte that is copied, even though you did not want to copy it, maybe overwriting slash temp slash byte that you want to keep. 
So to make it properly, you have to, of course, uh, CP quote dollar I quote double quote that is to temp so that you have the spaces uh, in the quotes and it gets uh, that gets expanded and you have both uh, byte and me. Now suppose uh, I have a command that strips off the suffix of a file name, for example, suf, suf, uh, foo.html, that simply prints foo to standard output. And suppose now I want to change the name of all the JPEG files to the corresponding names with uh, .jpg instead. So to strip the E from JPEG. Um, so they can do for I in star.jpeg, do move $i to or call the suffix program with $i as a parameter and then .jpg at the end without the e. So <laughs> that doesn't go so well. Haha, ha, no, some of the files might have spaces in their names. I have to write uh, move quote $i quote. So two sets of quotes, of course, also within the suffix itself where the shell expansion happens. And haha, no, fooled you. The output of the suff will also have spaces. So now you have to write also the uh, shell uh, yeah, invocation also in quotes. So three sets of quotes now. Uh, you can see uh, the examples in the um, show notes where it links to the article. That's easier to understand the uh, source code here. At this point, it's almost worth breaking out a real language and then using some, some Perl invocation uh, that is a bit more difficult to read but doesn't have to worry about the double quotes around uh, everything that may have spaces in it. So what they think, uh, what bugs them most about this problem is the shell is that it's so uncharacteristic if the Bell Labs people to have made such an unforced error. They got so many things right. Why not this? It's not even a hard choice. 99% of the time you don't want your strings implicitly split on spaces. Why would you? And the shell doesn't have this behavior for any other sort of special character. If you have a file named foo pipe bar and a variable z equals uh, single quote foo pipe bar single quote, then ls dollar z doesn't try to pipe the output of ls foo into the bar command. It just tries to list the file foo pipe bar like you want it. But if z equals single quote foo space bar single quote, then ls$z wants to list files foo and bar. How did the Bell Labs wizard get everything right except the spaces? Even if it was a simple or reasonable choice to make in the beginning, at some point around 1979, Steve Bourne had a clear opportunity to realize he had made a mistake. He introduced dollar star and must uh, shortly thereafter have discovered that it wasn't useful this must have gotten him thinking so dollar star is literally useless it is the variable that is supposed to contain the arguments to the current shell so for example you can write a shell script that does hello or echo i'm about to run the dollar star in single quotes now and then you do exec dollar star and then run it for example your program is called yell you can say yell date i'm about to run date now and then it gives the output of the date command wow 1980 that's wow really old okay uh, <laughs> except that it doesn't work because dollar star is useless so instead you get uh i'm about to run ah if you yeah if you pass to your yell program ls star.jpg perfectly reasonable i'm about to run ls byte me.jpg now okay that still gets expanded but then in the exec it goes like the following cannot access byte no such file directory and cannot access me.jpg no such file directory huh i see what went wrong i think it uh, got three arguments instead of two because of the elements of dollar star got auto split so they needed to use quotes around dollar star let's fix it and when 
that is done in the exec, so that's done in double quotes, then with your uh, ls star.jpg parameter, it goes yell free exec ls temp byte me jpeg not found. No, the quotes disabled all the splitting so that now I got one argument that happens to contain two spaces. This cannot be made to work. You have to fix the shell itself. Having realized that dollar star is useless, Born added a workaround to the shell, a unique special case with a special handling. He added dollar at the at sign, like uh, from your emails, uh, which is identical to dollar star in all ways but one when it is in double quotes whereas dollar star expands to dollar one dollar two and so on and quote dollar star quote expands to really just dollar one in quotes dollar two dollar three and so on whereas now dollar at expands to dollar one in quotes separately dollar two in quote double quotes separately dollar three in do double quotes and so on so that inside of yell uh, ls star jpeg and exec dollar at will turn into yell ls in double quotes Byte me JPEG in double quotes, so that's separate, and do what you wanted uh, with the exec dollar star to do in the first place. So they deeply regret that at the moment uh, Steve Bourne added code up this uh, weird special case. He didn't instead stop and think that maybe something deeper was wrong, but he didn't, and there we are. Larry Wall once said something about how too many programmers have a problem, think of a simple solution and implement the solution and what they really need to be doing is thinking of three solutions and then choosing the best one. I sure wish that had happened here. Anyway, having to use quotes everywhere is a pain, but usually it works around the white space problem and it is not much worse than a million other things that have to do to make our programs work in this uh, programming language, hell of our own making. But sometimes this isn't an adequate solution. Then uh, they talk about a different one, uh, for example, lastdl. All it does is produce the name of the file most recently written in $home slash downloads so that they can uh, figure that out. Many programs stick files into that directory, often copied from the web or from the phone, and often with long and difficult names, so like a hash, for example, and then a JPEG name. So that's more difficult to parse or even process with uh, simpler, uh, similar tools. Um, they list a couple more examples, and they also show a script that they use to have this, or to strip certain characters out and quote properly, and they have made the script available if you're interested in the article. Um, and there's an addendum at the bottom, because uh, they got some feedback about this blog post. Drew DeVault has written a reply article about how the RC shell does not have these problems, RC was designed in late 1980s by Tom Duff of Bell Labs, and it was a satisfied user of uh, Bayern Rakitsis clone for many years. Definitely give it a look. And Chris Seibelman also discusses RC in a, in a blog of his own, so maybe that is also of interest to you. Moving on to the news roundup. Uh, first up, we have Theo Durat on Zenbleed from the OpenBSD Journal. So this is a uh, excerpt out of the mailing list archive from OpenBSD Tech. Uh, the buzzword bug of the week is Zenbleed, which affects various AMD processors and explained more detail here. So it's uh, it delves into the technical detail in links on the OpenBSD Journal website. So I urge you to go and check it out on OpenBSD the latest current snapshots already have these fixes and errata patches will go out for the supported releases 7.2 and 7.3 shortly. Uh, 
In a post to the tech at mailing list, Theo Durat describes the situation. So he's got the header there. Zenbly Dorada for 7.2, 7.3 will come out soon. Uh, Sys upgrade of the current snapshots already contains a fix. So Theo wants to share some notes on the impact of this. OpenBSD does not use any of the AVX instruction to the same extent that Linux and Microsoft do. So this is not as important. On Linux, glibc has AVX-based optimizations for simple functions, string and memory copies, which will store secrets into the register file, which can be extracted trivially. So the impact on glibc based based systems is huge and is emphasized huge there. While working on our fixes, I ran the test programs for quite a while and I never saw anything resembling a text string. However, when I ran a browser, I saw streams of what was probably graphics related fragments flowing past. The base system clearly uses AVX very rarely by itself. In summary, in OpenBSD, this isn't a big deal today. However, attacks built upon primitives always get better over time, so I urge everyone to install these workarounds as soon as our errata ships. P.S. If you use syspatch for these new errata, you must install the boot blocks yourself. Syspatch cannot install them for you, so you must run this yourself before the last reboot. And it basically uh, implies that um, if you've got a SCSI disk or a SATA disk, install boot, minus V SD0, or if you've got an IDE style disk, it's install boot minus V WD0. Our CPU firmware update mechanism uses the boot blocks to load the firmware from the disk and provides it to the kernel. So if you don't have new boot blocks, you won't be protected. So that ends the actual excerpt out of the mailing list. Um, Back to the OpenBSD journal article. You read this right. Upgrade to the latest snapshot if you're on the current track. Otherwise, watch out for announcements and run syspatch as soon as the patches are released. And do remember to include the install boot setup to get the patched boot blocks on your system. Yep. Uh, to get at least a bit of protection. And OpenBSD seems to be uh, quick in this, that they have pushed out those fixes uh, as soon as it uh, was made public that this vulnerability exists. Okay. Uh, moving on to the new OpenSense release, 23.7, Restless Roadrunner. Mimi. And uh, they also have a nice picture of the thing. And uh, they're listed as a pivotal step in firewall platform evolution, empowering developers and integrators with enhanced API support through a significant integration or migration to a modern MVC framework. Ooh, nice. Okay. So what it's in, uh, in this release, this release marks a pivotal milestone in the platform's evolution. So that is already known. Uh, what's cool here, just as the Roadrunner bird is known for its speed, adaptability, and relentless pursuit, so too does this release embody these qualities. Restless Roadrunner reflects our unwavering commitment to innovation, resilience against challenges, yep, and dedicated to enhancing network security and performance. So this version enables API support for broad spectrum of features achieved through the diligent work from the MVC framework. Uh, Legacy migrated features include the interface diagnostics with uh, ping and traceroute and port probe, the uh, link aggregation interfaces, system services and diagnostics, DHCP leases, both v6 and v4, advanced unbound DNS capabilities, okay, 
nice. And additionally, floating roles and groups benefit from improved visibility, thus simplifying network management. A newly redesigned, user-friendly, and fully API-enabled OpenVPN instance module is also included in this release, providing developers and integrators with greater control and flexibility in VPN configurations. Huh, nice. Keeping pace with the restless Roadrunner, the CoreOS has been upgraded to FreeBSD 13.2 for enhanced stability, security, and performance. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good to see that they've uh, uplifted to thirteen point two to keep in track with uh, the supported release of uh, the FreeBSD thirteen branch there. So um, that'll uh, assist going forwards with keeping keeping up the breath with uh, su- supported uh, patches and uh, security releases as they come out. Mm-hmm. Further down the article, there you've you've got uh, additional uh, context uh, for README uh, of what was uh, updated and fixes uh, against the previous uh, release. So, yeah, go and check that out in the show notes. Mm -hmm. There's also some migration notes, known issues and limitations that you may want to be aware of before upgrading, but definitely uh, it looks like they put together a nice uh, new release for you to try. Excellent. Get testing. Uh, Moving on to porting the Portable C compiler. So this is PCC. Uh, This is by Dr. Brian Robert Callahan. Um, porting the portable C compiler PCC, PCC to Illuminous. Uh, hot off the heels of getting the Oracle Developer Studios 12.6 running on Illuminous. I'm back with more Illuminous uh, compiler support. I got the portable C, C, portable C compiler running on my Open Indiana machine. Uh, it was pretty straightforward to do. Below is the diff uh, for the PCC compiler itself, so we won't go into that. It's a differential. Uh, patch to apply uh, a lot of if defs there um, to to bring it up uh, ready to go. Um, so porting is a bit of a stretch. I simply taught PCC how to live in an Illuminos environment. Nevertheless, this might well be the first time PCC has ever run on a Illuminos system. PCC is a nice little C99 compiler. It is much faster than Clang and GCC, though slower than TCC. With that said, PCC almost certainly generates better code than TCC as PCC has a real optimizer. PCC certainly has a place in the pantheon of C compilers. State of affairs. Looks like some time ago, someone added configuration for 32-bit x86 and Spark 64 support for the Solaris family, but no one ever tried to support 64-bit x86. So first we had to teach the configure script for both PCC and PCC libs that 64-bit x86 Solaris exists. This Illumos uh, people have sunset 32-bit kernel support, but that only affects the kernel. You can still run 32-bit binaries, and if you really want to cre- want to create 32-bit binaries, so in theory PCC should support Illumos. It'll just create 32-bit binaries, but that's just fine. But those binaries should work. Uh, it goes a bit more into building the 32-bit x86 PCC and, and what's required there. Uh, then it moves into the linking part. Uh, 64-bit support. All I need to do to get 64-bit Illumos support is to tweak the link of flags to point to the library directories that contain the 64-bit libraries. Very easy. And that's it. It was not terribly difficult to support Illumos, but it is good that it is done. Now more people can benefit from PCC. These patches are being committed. The 32-bit support has already been committed, and I'm sure that the 64-bit support will be committed soon. PCC packages for Lumos. 
I want to make things easy for Lumos users to use PCC. So I read this page, and he's got a link in the article there, and created a package of PCC, a package of the 64-bit PCC generating 64-bit binaries. In this package, I tweaked the linker flags to use the dash capital V flag for the linker in verbose mode. So you will get linker versions output in the verbose mode. You can download the package here, and he's got a link to the package. It uses the Open Indiana package repository to resolve dependencies. I don't know if it, if that's good or bad, but it's what it is. It is what it is, and what I did. Conclusion: This was a fun little morning project to get PCC supported for Lumos. Now more people can use PCC, and Lumos users have a new C compiler to use on their machines. So yeah, go and check out the rest of his blog there. Uh, on his uh, personal blog website. Mm -hmm. All right. Then we have fixing ThinkPad X1 Wi-Fi on FreeBSD. This one goes, as much as I like FreeBSD, my laptop has mostly sat dormant for the last few weeks. It rocked an AX200, an excellent Wi-Fi adapter, unless you want to use it in FreeBSD. There were three reasons for this, with one primary cause. First, Wi-Fi speeds up to Wi-Fi 2. Second, inability of the system to resume after suspend. And third, occasional kernel panics. Long story short, uh, with some footnotes, uh, if you want to dig down deeper into those, the firmware is yet to be properly reverse engineered and the card is still unsupported. The team can't simply copy the Linux driver due to BSD slash GPL licensing compatibilities, so the work needs to continue. Luckily, ThinkPads are still good laptops, and the card uh, was not soldered. So there was a way. Buy a better supported card and just replace it. Unfortunately, Lenovo is not a good company. You can't simply buy any random card matching the port and be sure it will work. The BIOS has a whitelist of supported hardware, and it is uh, detecting anything outside of this list. The machine won't boot. Lenovo support proved itself useless. I tried to contact them and get the list of whitelisted Wi-Fi adapters, but at first they had no idea what I was talking about, and then we finally got to the same page. They started to ignore me. Uh, after a few nags met with silence, I just gave up and ordered a used Intel AC9260. Uh, hmm. Have I mentioned that ThinkPads are still good devices? Placing the Wi-Fi adapter was sparkly, but easy. Just pop the two antenna connectors, unscrew a single screw, remove the card, and do the same in reverse for the new one. Try to do that with a MacBook. Ah, well. Okay, so they also posted a picture of how that looks like. Then, with a single reinstall of the system, everything started working. I'm still limited to Wi-Fi 2, but it works over 5 GHz. It's a small problem, because my system can finally suspend and resume. Uh, I no longer need to power off or power on all the time, because it's... No longer necessary. I no longer need to be annoyed by the booting speed because it will no longer be a constant sigh for me. I also have a, not backed by any analysis, feeling that the laptop runs colder. With this, I am now a 2BSD guy. OpenBSD on the server and FreeBSD on the computer. Why not go fully into one? Mostly BSDs are cool and it's nice to get to know each other. But also each of them has its strengths and weaknesses. OpenBSD is secure, has HTTPD slash RelayD and modern PF, but a smaller number of ported software, no ZFS, and finding answers on the information highway is more difficult. For a server, those are non-issues, as I have no intention of installing random crap there. But for my computer, I want to experiment more. 
I will break the system, so ZFS will be a great addition, and having more applications ready to package, install will make this much nicer. And uh, footnotes are at the bottom. So yeah, this is nice. And yeah, looking at, I was thinking about, hmm, if that Intel card is also not on the whitelist, then buying a separate one is not going anywhere. But it seems like this uh, card is. Yeah, typically you can, um, you know, through eBay, uh, listings and that sort of stuff, you get a pretty clear indication if it's actually um, either an old one that's out of a existing Lenovo laptop or um, one that's been damaged and they've salvaged hardware out of it. So I, I really haven't found myself an issue with buying random stuff uh, for that's ex Lenovo and, and had it running, and that's including in the Think Stations or or um, the ThinkPad laptop. So uh, yeah pretty safe especially on the on the stuff it's only the newer stuff may have issues running in an older laptop so just keep that in mind that the mm. the uh, last paragraph was pretty well on the money so i i sort of agree there um but uh yeah be be across multiple bsds don't just isolate yourself to one because each one has its strengths and weaknesses and uh you know i work in a space where we have you know multiple uh, different BSDs running for specific purposes that they are uh, have their strengths in. So yeah, hmm. yeah. And maybe FreeBSD's uh, Wi-Fi will at one point get better. I see a couple of commits uh, these last few days from Bjorn Zeep, who's uh, under contract from the FreeBSD Foundation to improve Wi-Fi. So maybe that gets us uh, to a better state sooner or later. Yeah, it's hard. I, you know, Wi-Fi has always been one of those ones for the last twenty years that you're constantly chasing your tail, trying to, mm. trying to find, you know, a better, better, a proposition uh, for people to use. It's it's hard, and I totally understand the the frustrations that end users have, and also developers, because you know developers have got to fly this stuff blind. They don't get anything from from um, the vendors of this hardware, so they they really do an outstanding job with the the stuff that they have at their hands to be able to uh, write the code. Yeah, and as people get used to all Wi-Fi being everywhere and uh, everywhere available, they of course have also uh, their demands of, "Hey, I just how hard could it be?" Just well, it actually is difficult yep. to integrate and uh, have it working. BC now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated, so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups, 
go to tarsnap.com to learn more. But yeah, I think that's it for today. Um, we have feedback and questions in the next episode. So stay tuned for that. And thanks for listening. Thank you. Have a good evening. <laughs>